very special edition of the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode, we are participating in the infamous podcast crossover known as JL May. That means rather than focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983, this time around, we'll be going on a JL May driven special mission to take a look at Brave and the Bold number 28. From the 2007 Brave and the Bold series published by DC Comics. So, before we get down to the nitty gritty, we're going to do a little something on this show that we call Retroactive History, where Rich, our esteemed co-host, talks about news that has popped up since our previous issue, mistakes we may have made, other fires that need to put be put out, and whatever the heck else has crossed his mind in the meantime. So... I'm going to hand it over to him to get that done. Indeed. One of the books I had to buy as soon as I found out about it was We Spoke Out, Comic Books and the Holocaust by Neil Adams, Raphael Meadoff, and Craig Yo. It came out in 2018 by IDW Publishing. It's a hardcover collection of comic stories and commentaries that talked about the Holocaust. The Uncanny X-Men, Captain America, Captain Marvel, The Losers, The Unknown Soldier, and Batman are featured, and there are stories that appeared in other books. Blitzkrieg, Marvel's War is Hell, EC's Frontline Combat, and many more. I pulled it off my shelf recently to review it, but it was the discovery inside of Neil Adams' story, Thou Shalt Not Kill, that this show covered after it was printed in Weird War Tales number 8 that makes me do some free advertising for it here. This is probably the best 50 bucks I spent that year. Go get it. With anti-Semitism on the rise, it's more important than ever that we never forget. Next up on the show is this little bit that we call the Intel Report. That is where we talk about war, horror, comic book miniseries or regular series that we think would be of interest to our dear listeners. This time around, it is called Lost Squad a six-issue uh, black-and-white miniseries by Devil's Due Publishing from 2005, written by Chris Kirby, art by Alan Robinson. It's 1942, and the Allies have been vanquished from continental Europe. The German army has unleashed a new division of soldiers trained in the ways of magic, equipped with experimental weaponry, and bent on acquiring the world's most powerful artifacts to defeat their enemies and rule the world. The Allies have scrambled to assemble a group of soldiers with special powers to fight a secret war against Hitler's occult troops. They are the Lost Squad. It's Dirty Dozen meets H.P. Lovecraft. The cover of issue six says the rights have been picked up for a major motion picture. But if that's the case, it never got made as far as I can tell. All right. Well, you know how that goes. Something gets optioned and the creators get some money and then you wait to see if anything ever happens. But you still get that advance money, which which can't hurt. So before we get down into the issue at hand, we're going to take a break to play a promo for another uh, super awesome podcast out there. And when we get back, we'll be taking a look at Brave and the Bold number 28 from the 2007 series of the same name. Just when you thought it was safe to hear our podcast promo. JL 
yell, make do 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 brave and bold do 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 comic books do 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 jail make. JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL May the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back and we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlook Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JL make do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 Mephisto. Hey, that it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. <laughs> and we're back. So as I said before the break, we are going to be covering Brave and the Bold number twenty-eight from the two thousand seven. Brave and the Bold series from DC Comics. And as is SOP here on our show, Rich is going to fill you all in on the cover detail. Art by Jesus Saez. Price $2.99. The Brave and the Bold title is white on a red banner along the top of the cover with the logos for Blackhawk and The Flash directly under it. Lightning crackling, the flash runs directly toward the viewer with the Blackhawk logo right behind him. Six Blackhawk fighter aircraft fly in formation overhead, trailing smoke. Cover date, December 2009. Date of release, October 21st, 2009. Okay, comments and commendations on this issue's cover. I'll start it off and say that the sentiments I express here will very closely echo the comments I have about the interior art moving forward. Jesus Saiz is a talented artist. His drawings are great, and his style is clean. However, in this case, to me, it is also sparse and boring. It's almost antiseptic, really. The cover simply exists. The elements are all there, but they have nowhere near the impact they're supposed to. This is the fastest man alive racing a squadron of experimental aircraft. We should be having our hair blown back by this. And yet, it all just kind of sits there against a virtually empty background. Again, all of it is well drawn. It's the soul of it that feels empty to me. I have no idea why I picked this issue up. I don't collect either title, and the cover really isn't all that eye-catching, to no, no, piggyback on what Max said. Hell, I can count the total amount of issues I've bought in my life by both titles on the fingers of one hand. But you know what? Whatever made me do it, I'm glad, because once I skimmed through it, I had to have it. We'll get into why later. Slight spoiler, the Blackhawks are groundbound in this issue and never fly. So we don't see those XF-5F skyrockets in action. It was a real aircraft built by Grumman, but only one was ever built. And although a very capable design, securing spare parts and other factors compounded the difficulties in maintaining a twin-engine fighter on an aircraft carrier in that era. So the Navy went with the Grumman F-4F Wildcat instead. 
photo in the episode album on our Facebook page. Okay, with our opinions about the cover out of the way, we're going to jump into the story at hand. It is called Firing Line. It's 22 pages long. Script is by J. Michael Straczynski, yes, of Babylon 5 fame, and art by the aforementioned Jesus Saiz. Synopsis for the story goes like this. Spring. The Flash stands in the middle of a grassy field in the Ardennes, Belgium, talking with Dr. Garten, who I don't know if we ever hear from again. The doctor has set up a multi-spectrum laser with the capacity to vary its own speed, allowing it to change the speed of light by altering its vibrational properties and allowing them to better understand the properties of light in the process. A long run is needed to monitor the light as the properties change. So, the Flash is handed a monitor and is instructed to run alongside the beam as close to light speed as possible. What could go wrong, right? Well, when the test begins, the Flash does as the doctor instructed, but the changing frequency of the laser interacts with his own vibrational frequency. The monitor shorts out, and the Flash is pulled into the beam's field before he can get clear. There's an explosion, and the Flash screams in agony and passes out. When he awakens, he's surprised to find himself lying in a snowy wood. Getting to his feet, his right leg buckles and he goes down. Uh-huh, handy, that. It's broken in two places. Great. So much for running out of wherever he was. The Flash limps over to the glowing blue and white rift that had brought him here, which is hovering in midair behind him. The only way he can go back that way is if he goes into the rift at the same speed he'd come out, which wasn't going to happen for a while. See, broken leg problem. He'd obviously traveled some distance in time, but forward or back? Climbing a hill to get his bearings, Flash is not ready for the sight that greets him. Two Stuka dive bombers fly over a column of German infantry, passing a flipped and burning American truck. It's the Battle of the Bulge, World War II. This is not good. One of the Germans sees the Flash and opens fire. Flash hides behind a tree as bullets start to tear through it. Running on snow and ice with a damaged leg is out of the question, but there are other ways to escape. Dropping to his knees, he uses his super speed with one arm to create his own snowstorm and uses the concealment to slip away. But his foot slips in the snow and he tumbles down to the bottom of the hill. Collecting himself, the Flash is surprised to see an M1 rifle aimed at his head. Sprechen's English? A man wearing the uniform of the Blackhawk Squadron asks from behind the rifle. It's okay, I'm an American, the Flash replies. Yeah, right. Every U.S. soldier got that uniform. Whichever side you're on, wearing red in winter is nature's way of saying, look, I'm a target. Name, rank, serial number. I can't tell you my name and I'm not a soldier, I'm a civilian. Uh-huh. So, you're supposed to be one of those costumes from back home, is that it? What do they call you? The Flash. Sorry, pal. I've seen The Flash in action. He wears a silver helmet and blue pants. The Nazis need to do a little more research before they send someone out. But at that moment, two more Blackhawks emerge from the woods. He's not one of them, Blackhawk, one of them said. Andre saw the Germans shooting at this one until he threw a snowstorm at them one-handed. Recognition finally strikes the flash. Wait a minute. Blackhawk, you're the Blackhawks? You guys were our heroes. 
I remember reading about you when I was a kid. We ain't that old, son. The Flash agrees to tell them as much as he can once they get out of the open. Blackhawk agrees, but is still suspicious. Taking shelter in a blasted house, the Flash, his mask off, splints his leg as he tells the six pilots how he came to be there. It's the tallest of tales, obviously. And Blackhawk himself still isn't buying it without a shred of proof to back it up. Seems fair. So he tests the Flash in a different way. If what you say is true, then all this is already done. A lot of what's secret now should be in textbooks tomorrow. A few weeks ago, we helped smuggle some German scientists out to New Mexico to help consult on a top secret project for the military. I got the name, but no one else is supposed to have that name. Name it, and you live. Flash's answer is immediate. The Manhattan Project. Do you know what it is? Yes, but let's not talk about it in front of the children, he replied, gesturing to the other pilots. So let me ask you something, the Flash counters. What are you doing here on the ground? Blackhawk tells the Flash that they've been flying missions for months without a break. So Allied Command decided to give them a rest before the big push to Berlin. The Ardennes was firmly under Allied control, the safest place in Europe. So the six of them were sent back there in a half track. They were ambushed by German infantry, so much for the safest place in Europe. The driver was killed and the half track lost control and flipped onto its side. The Blackhawks fought their way clear of the ambush, but behind enemy lines with no communication. They didn't know where to go to be useful. Then maybe I can be of some help, the Flash offered. I read there's a town that we had to hold to keep the Germans from getting behind our troops. This town fell. The whole future of the war could change. But before this line of conversation could be furthered, a group of Germans crest a nearby knoll and head towards their hiding place. The Blackhawks spread out in the building and prepare to engage the enemy. One of the pilots, Andre, Hands the Flash a 45. We're going to need all the help we can get, so put this to good use. The Flash is mortified. But I don't, this isn't what I, here they come, someone shouts as the Germans attack. The Blackhawks return fire, but the Germans continue to advance. Looking at the pistol in his hand, the Flash's gaze falls on a pile of bricks, and he picks one up. Outside, the Germans are bewildered to see a cloud of bricks arcing through the sky and heading for them. The avalanche stops the German attack dead in its tracks, knocking out or stunning them all. Blackhawk grabs the flash and slams him against the wall. What the hell was that about? You think this is a game or something? We're in the middle of a war. We kill them or they kill us. The flash protests. Killing isn't what I do. When I put on this uniform, I made a vow not to kill. You're an American in the middle of a war. And if you don't pick up a gun and fight, you're a coward and an impediment to the war effort, and I'll shoot you myself. The other Blackhawks agree. When we put our uniforms on, we made a vow to kill as many as we had to to end the war. So figure it out fast, friend. Meanwhile, what was this town you were talking about? It was called Bastogne. Soon, the seven men leave their shelter and head for Bastogne. The Flash is limping along and supported by a walking stick, mentally wrestling with his dilemma. Killing goes against everything he believes in. No sane man wants to kill. When is it right to kill? What makes it right? Coming across the burned-out truck the Flash had first seen when he arrived in 1944, Blackhawk calls a halt. 
there are two dead Americans lying in the wreckage and supplies scattered all around. The Flash gazes on the scene and makes his decision. As the Blackhawks watch, the Flash digs through the supplies and puts on an American uniform. The Flash can't kill, but Barry Allen, American, can do those things in the uniform of his country, which is at war. The days blur into weeks. Allen and the Blackhawks make it to Baston before it's encircled and help defend the town against repeated German assaults. Even when the Blackhawks have a chance to escape and get their planes, they stay on the ground and fight. When the siege is finally broken and the Germans retreat, Allen and the Blackhawks pursue with the rest of the American forces. Allen manages to evade detection for most of the fighting. But once generals start asking questions, he and Blackhawk make their way back to where it all started, that glowing blue rift in the Belgian woods. Allen's leg had healed enough to make the attempt to get back home. And Blackhawk has a question. If you know who we are, and what's going on now, then you know what happened, what's going to happen. And his voice trails off to a whisper. Do we win? Was this, was all this worth it? Do we win? Yeah, we win, Ellen replies. But there are still men and women out there dying every day. There have been more wars, more fighting, more death. But the country is still the country. It has its flaws and it isn't always right but it's intact. Guess that's all that matters. Alan pulls his flash uniform out of his rucksack and changes. Go with God, son, Blackhawk says, as the flash starts to run, building up speed and throwing himself into the rift. He's thrown back out on the springtime field where he started. Dr. Garton comes running up and is shocked at the flash's haggard appearance. A mere second in time here had been weeks on the other side. Extraordinary, the doctor exclaims as he runs off to get his journal. The Flash walks around a row of hedges and gazes at a field of a different sort. A field of honor, rows of white crosses and stars of David lined in perfect symmetry. Extraordinary? No. What I do, what I've done, isn't extraordinary. They were the extraordinary ones. And next up, we have this little bit we call Killjoy was here. Acknowledging that this, that as part of this podcast crossover, we probably have a lot of first-time listeners. We'll give you this bit's backstory. Uh, most of us have heard the expression Kil Kilroy was here, a piece of World War II graffiti that was scrawled all over the world by U.S. servicemen. It's even hidden on the National World War II Memorial in D.C. A Killjoy is a rather dated reference for someone that spoils everyone else's fun. Combine the two and we have Killjoy was here, where we nitpick the things in the comic the creative team got wrong and ruining your five minutes of escapism. You're welcome. So, to continue. A fighter squadron gets sent to a quiet section of the front to relax? What, London and Paris were off limits? Whatever, plot device. But on page 19 in the mosaic of battle scenes in Bastogne, Allen says the Germans are pursued to the Meuse River. The Meuse is to the west of Bastogne, away from Germany. In fact, the Meuse is only as far as the leading German elements got during the bulge, which was only about halfway to their ultimate objective of Antwerp. And seeing as how I'm still talking, I will just lead off with my comments and commendations. In my opinion, the creative team with one small error hit a home run. So many panels I can call out. Page four, panel four, the sudden starkness of the flash waking up in a winter wonderland where just seconds before there had been grass and sun. Page 11, panel 1, the dialogue where the Flash and Blackhawk vaguely discuss the Manhattan Project. 
Page 15, panels one through three, the avalanche of bricks, the flash throws that break up the German assault. Yeah, sorry, Barry, I, I know the Germans are wearing helmets and all. There's absolutely no way you didn't kill a couple of them. But on the flip side, you did a lot more to stop that attack with your brick bombs than you would have popping away with a pistol. <laughs> Page 18, panel four, of Barry coming to terms with his dilemma and gearing up. That panel is just great. I'm a World War II reenactor, and I've been wearing that uniform longer than I've been wearing the current one for Uncle Sam. The bandolier, suspenders, and jacket are spot on. As I've said more than once on our show, I've been to the Normandy American Cemetery in France. And looking upon those rows of graves of thousands of, upon thousands of American youth that gave up all of their tomorrows is something that I will never forget. Perhaps as a reenactor and a veteran myself, I have a deeper connection than most. The last panel of the story, where the flash looks over such a scene, leaves you with something to think about. It looked familiar, so I did some research. The power to Saiz, who did his research, the white building is the chapel in the Ardennes American Cemetery in Belgium, where 5,329 Americans rest for eternity, 792 unknown, and another 462 MIAs are remembered. There are 11 cases of two brothers buried side by side and three Medal of Honor awardees. The facade on the north end that overlooks the burial area bears the insignia in mosaic of the major U.S. units that operated in Northwest Europe during World War II. Out of the mosaic is carved the following. To the silent host who endured all and gave all that mankind might live in freedom and in peace. There's a photo similar to that panel's perspective in the album. You are not forgotten. All right. And after uh, all of that well-placed reverence and uh, kudos given out and whatnot, I'll do what I usually do here on the show and serve as kind of a counterpoint every now and then. I will say I was a mark for this series when it debuted, being a big DC Comics fan from way, way back when I was a kid. So I read every issue of this series until it ended. I can tell you I enjoyed this issue a heck of a lot more when I first read it than I did just now. Or at least I think so. I'll, I'll pick up my thread from the cover comments here and just say that the art overall feels hollow and really, in a way, kind of lazy to me. To tie in Rich's comments a bit, it's all well rendered and apparently super accurate, which is great and, and rare out there, but it lacks a certain character or impact for me. Again, it feels like it's all just kind of there. Perhaps I can sum up my grievances using one common element on every page of this story. The sky. Jesus didn't draw one. In every panel of this story, the sky is pretty much just a Photoshop filter or something the colorist, Trich Mulville, threw in for him. It makes everything look and feel like a test run, eh, rather than a finished product. A lot of the panels don't even have a real background either. And, and when they do, they all feel kind of sterile. Even the Flash's speed tricks, which should be amazing, which what, what few of them he gets to use here feel dull. The snowstorm he starts with one hand to run from the Germans early on looks like nothing of the sort. We have to be told that's what it is, and, that, and then that's what happened. Even then, you go back and look at it and squint like, is it really, though? And the best speed trick with the brick barrage thrown towards the Nazis feels far more static than exciting. Really, it looks like the bricks are all hanging on strings, like they're part of some mobile. Speed lines are a thing in comic books for a reason, okay? I shouldn't have to tell someone drawing the flash about speed lines. Anyway, 
Now to the writing, kind of echoing the art. This all should be exciting and moving, but for me, it's just not. In fact, part of it ended up pissing me off when JMS probably thought I'd be moved or inspired by it. Yeah, the whole part where Blackhawk yells at Barry for ending their whole showdown with the Germans by tossing bricks at them, as I just mentioned, that sucks. And it was stupid, too. You want to go out there and double tap all those Nazis now that they're unconscious, Blackie? Go ahead. Who's stopping you? And by the way, you're welcome. Blackhawk comes off as such a dick in this story that I wonder if the writer even likes him. This wouldn't inspire me to seek out any other stories with the Hawks in them, that's for sure. Also, Barry suiting up in GI gear is fine. But for me, it really doesn't solve the now I can kill because I'm not the Flash problem. You didn't join the army, Barry. You don't have any training. You're just a Flash out of costume shooting people dead. It doesn't work for me. Speaking of working, this is still the DC universe, right? How is the Flash even over in the European theater? Hitler has the Spear of Destiny, and any superhuman beings risk falling under its spell if they fight in the war over there, right? That's why only the non-powered heroes of the JSA and the All-Star Squadron went over there. And some of them, as I was going to say, as straight-up enlisted soldiers, like they dropped their hero identities entirely. Sorry, but on rereading, this story feels like an empty bunch of borderline jingoistic pandering to me, for the most part. I will say, the most effective page of the issue, both art and writing-wise, but mostly art-wise, is, as Rich already alluded to, the full-page montage that follows Barry's gearing up scene. Some actual effort went into that page. It's proof that the same could have been applied to the entire issue. Eh. Overall, I see the potential of this story, really, I do. I just think that these were the wrong creators to carry it out. I'd have loved to see a messier artist and a different, maybe more bombastic writer tackle this exact same plot it would have been a better comic book in my opinion so there we go that's our summary of our our spotlighted issue for the this year's jl may crossover there's no letters page for us to cover as we usually like to do when we're covering the weird war tales issues so rich is going to lead off with our spotlighted ads in this issue what is it about dc books in this era that i struggle finding good ads for you know, the weird war tales, what we call redeployment issues from the late 90s that we've covered generally suck. And a decade later, this really wasn't much better. But my son loved watching Star Wars, The Clone Wars as a kid, and we all enjoyed watching it with him. So I'll go with an ad for that on the inside back cover. Cad Bane and Anakin are squared off looking at the reader. Hunter, hunted, rise of the bounty hunters with the evil bounty hunters on the prowl. Have the noble Jedi finally met their match? All new season Fridays beginning October 2nd, only on Cartoon Network. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about comics from 2009. By now, the audience had aged up. And I think through the 90s, you saw a shift in ads for like, you know, instead of like kids stuff like bazooka bubblegum and endless ads for zit cream, which were in the 80s. Yeah, like oxy and whatnot and different kinds of big league chew and all that. And the 90s, all of a sudden you were seeing ads for like cars and stuff. And by the 2000s, you were, they were putting in ads for grown up stuff. Like the people buying comics or you can't be saving up for a car. You've got, you've got a $60 a week pull list at the comic shop. You're not spending your money wisely. All right. So as for me, 
when it comes to a spotlighted ad in this issue, there's one that really spoke to my tragic relationship to experiments by comic book companies that try to do something different. Okay, there's a nice ad that shows, well, I'll just say it says the Dark Knight, the Man of Bronze, the Batman Doc Savage special together for the first time in a world without superpowers. You got Batman in a gray suit with the black bat, very dark black cape, you know, so it's a dark looking Batman jumping down off a building, looking like he's about to uh, step on the head of Doc Savage, you know, classic 1930s pulp hero Doc Savage, big dude in a, well, the shirt is still kind of ripped, but not as ripped as they normally show it on the book covers, and a button-down shirt and slightly John Purish khakis with a really tight crew cut. One of these old 1930s science heroes. He's really a precursor to Superman. Like, he could do everything, but... As it says, a world without superpowers, and we'll get back to that. Doc Savage isn't going to be lifting up a truck over his head and throwing it at you anytime soon. But he's also not going to be taking any crap at the local bar, you know? So tough guy, super smart, all that. Pretty much everything we know about Batman. Trained himself to physical perfection. So it's these two either squaring off or teaming up, probably a little bit of both. And that's what the special promises. The creative team, too, that they advertise here. The writer of Joker and 100 Bullets, Brian Azzarello, with art by Phil Noto, November 2009, for this special. This led into DC's first wave project. It was one of the last new initiatives at the company that I got really excited for. I mean, a pulp-style reimagining of the entire DC universe without superpowers, featuring many of the famous pulp and pulp-style characters of the Golden Age and before. I mean... I was in. Launched in 2009, like the ad says, with this Batman Doc Savage special, the line ran for about two years until 2011. The first wave miniseries itself was six issues long. There was a spirit series, as in Will Eisner's The Spirit character, that lasted 17 issues, and a Doc Savage series that lasted for 18, although... The final issue was never printed and only released in digital format. Each of those series had backups featuring other characters like the Avenger. There's there's many other characters they worked in or retooled to this, but we only have the first wave mini, these two ongoings really, to show for the experiment. Overall, commercially, first wave was a flop, and the quality of the books themselves was debatable amongst even the people like me who bought it. I haven't gone back to reread them in quite some time, but I recall just signing on for the whole thing in hopes it would catch on and expand to include other creators and characters. However, the line was doomed to fail, as are so many of these projects that I get excited about. And all we have is this two-year run to hint at what perhaps could have been. I mean, with all the various rights owners and estates involved, one wonders how long they even could have kept it all going, but hey, it was daring original, and new, and it was DC Comics even. Sigh. So that hit kind of hard for me. I, I had forgotten how hard I fell for this and seeing that ad with all its potential and everything just brimming, just opened the wound up again. A little bit of salt in there for old time's sake. So that's the ads. We've covered the issue. We've talked to you about the cover. We're going to do a little th- something to sum it all up. Then on our show here, we call Got Any Last Words? me this this comic was a total win and as i said on the in the opener i don't even know why i picked it off the rack in the first place you know <laughs> you know we would never have done this issue in our show 
if not for the crossover. I'm, I'm completely on board to doing this next year, guys. Uh, I might even have to give the World War II era themed Blackhawk books a second chance after doing this. Well, it's another Cisco and Ebert style throwdown here, folks. I read this issue a few times in the process of getting ready for this show. You know, it's special. We're crossing over. We're having company over. And each time, I liked it less. I'm going to go back and reread every issue of this series on the DCU Infinite app because I have a membership there. I'm a DC fan. I'm trying to be anyway just to see if I really did enjoy all of those other issues as much as I think I did. So there we go. And with the issue at hand out of the way, we're going to move on to a section of the show we call the Dead Letter Office, where we check in on all these social interactions we have with our valued listeners. And this edition of the Dead Letter Office is focusing on episode 43 of our show, where we covered Weird War Tales number 36, which was a giant-sized anniversary issue of the series. Over on Facebook, we had some people stop by to say hey, those people being Daniel Rapoli, Tim DeForest of the Comics Radio Blogspot.com site, uh, Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, Herschel Memis, Brian Cottrell, new and a uh, big, big uh, friend of the show, Dave Marchand, and David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast. Over on Twitter, where we can be found at Weird War Pod once again. David Steele and Luke Giaconetti stopped by there too, and they both retweeted our announcement about the new episode, which was pretty nice of them. Over on our Gmail account, which is weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, we got a couple of letters, one from our good buddy Jason Zeller, who is the sole owner and founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, which means he sat down early on in the show and listened to a whole string of our episodes at once to catch up. And it's a feat that no one has since reported mimicking or copying. So he's the only one who's got it, folks. Let us know. Let us know what's how many episodes have you listened to in a row, as in one a day, whatever, and a string. And maybe maybe you can get a copy of that same award, which exists only in your mind. All right? So Jason wrote in, and he actually wrote in about two of our episodes where we covered G.I. Sweethearts number 45, which is our special Valentine's Day episode, and Weird War Tales number 36. And since we're doing a crossover here, I will read out the full email covering both topics. Jason says, I really enjoyed this Valentine's Day themed episode. You guys really knocked it out of the park. See why we like Jason. The music at the beginning and your voices really set the stage that this was going to be a romantic themed episode. When I was much younger, I remember looking for war books, mainly Sergeant Rock, Weird War Tales, Unknown Soldier, and The Losers, and Long Boxes, and would occasionally flip past one of these romance books. I would see the uniform and think, yes, another war book. And that would quickly change to, oh no, I don't want that romance stuff. It is so cool to note that at one point in time, however, there was a huge market for these romance books, as there used to be for war books, funny books, horror books, and westerns. Basically, there was something for everyone on the comic rack. Oh, the glory days of comics. 
which is usually the time anyone was 10 to 14 years old. But okay. <laughs> Great job on the episode and covering the three stories inside. I'm glad Lou Bender got his at the end of the third story and that everyone in each story lives happily ever after. Well, it's a romance comic. You know, it's not a gothic romance comic. That's Those are different endings. Keep up the great work with these side episodes as they are pretty fun. I would not mind an annual Valentine's Day episode if you guys feel so inclined. Many people said the same thing. About WWT 36, Jason said, I was so excited for this giant-sized issue. It was a little disappointing to realize there were several reprints from previous Weird War Tales, but it wasn't the worst thing. Decent enough cover, and it was great to have Qbert back on cover detail. Escape was a cool story. Made me wonder, where did all the other people's spirit and astral forms go when his astral form took over? At least Talbot died for his fellow soldiers. The Moon is the Murderer was a classic. I enjoyed as much now as when I first read it. Thirteenth Man was just a... Twilight Zone episode rehash of Season 4, Episode 2, 30 Fathom Grave, almost exactly. This seems to be a classic WWT trope of a survivor getting called back or killed in the same place where he was supposed to die. Like, one cannot accept fate. And I'll note for newcomers here that Jason is one of the people who is always good at calling out when a Weird War Tales writer has stolen a Twilight Zone plot, which is often. Jason goes on to give kudos to the pool. Another great reprint of a classic tale of humankind since our beginnings to the present day show us always finding a reason for war. Have we really changed for the better or are we any different from 12,000 years ago? I think we all know the answer. I was thrilled to see the full page Claw the Unconquered ad. Thank you for pointing this out and highlighting this series, Max. Haha, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I know this was ripped straight from Conan. Eh, well, yeah, okay, fine. But I love this series. Unfortunately, it was short lived due to 1970s DC implosion in which so many titles were canceled never to return again. Jason tells me there is a really cool Tomorrow's publishing book covering this era called Comic Book Implosion, an oral history of DC Comics circa 1978. And yeah, I have that book. It's in my gigantic stack of books I have yet to read that's in my closet behind me, kind of just taunting me right now. Monsieur Gravedigger, he goes on to say, that reprint is still one of my least favorite of all the WWT stories. And I got to tell you, part of me sympathizes, but part of my soul also belongs to that story. There's a history behind that, people. Go listen to the entire podcast. Thanks. Bloody Halloween was a short but funny story for me. This gothic setting and atmosphere never gets old for this particular comic reader. I was disappointed it was a vampire that looked like Dracula doing the attacking, as I was hoping we would meet the sorcerer more evil than Dracula himself mentioned in the dialogue. Having a two-page letter column was nice, and I really enjoyed the insightful origin of Weird War Tales from the legendary Joe Orlando himself. That was an anniversary issue. I had to have something special in there. And day after Doomsday, I was thinking how corny the story would be but they had me laughing out loud as Adam and Gertrude instead of Adam and Eve were left to repopulate the earth. A lot of people like that joke. I wasn't one of them. So <laughs> Jason says, Colonel Clown isn't laughing anymore is another classic WWT story of justified supernatural revenge from beyond the grave. Thanks for all the details, Rich, about the Warsaw Ghetto and city and Poland's heroics trying to stand up to the Nazis and the Soviets. I enjoyed reading Death Graham, again, with Joe Kubert, always an all-time favorite. 
the deadly seeds to wrap up the big issue here was a nice end cap about killer plants taking over. This comes at an interesting time for me. As I just listened to an old time radio show, hear that Tim DeForest? The Hybrid by Nightmare from 1954, starring Peter Lorre, in which a single carnivorous plant was destroyed at the end but seeds are now blowing everywhere in the wind. And Jason says, sorry for the long email. Hey, sorry people I had to listen to me read the email. The email's great. But it was very nice to have an oversized WWT to cover. Feel free to skip over the comments from the reprinted stories. Now you tell me. All right. So Rich, after uh, all that wind out of me, is going to read a letter from someone who hasn't written all that often. And I'm, I was very happy to hear from. We have a missive from Luke Giaconetti talking about our next five issue of the podcast weird warriors hey guys wanted to drop you an email about your recent episode covering the next five dc war comic series i became a fan of dc war comics around 2007 thanks to the publication of showcase presents the war that time forgot i was not a lifelong reader of war comics like rich or my friend kirk spencer and did not have the background with which titles were more important or historical than others I had read a few war books before that. As a kid, my brother had GI Combat 195 with the Haunted Tank and the War That Time Forgot. And I knew some of the very long-running features, namely Sergeant Rock and Haunted Tank and Sergeant Fury over at Marvel. But that volume, coupled with my burgeoning interest in the history of DC Comics, is what led me to start reading their war titles, along with other genre books not relevant here. In any event, what I soon found was that DC had a width and depth of war comics, which other major publishers, uh, which other major publishers could not touch. As I've said before, I'm in full agreement there. Yes, Marvel had a very well-known and beloved title in Sergeant Fury, and Charlton had sheer volume, if not similar quality. Partist with was these next five titles, which you discuss here. The first war series I collected was Weird War Tales, as the crossover aspect of which immediately and continues to fascinate me. I was absolutely intrigued when I discovered Blitzkrieg, a series of which I still have not seen a single issue in person. My appreciation of naval stories made me interested in Captain Storm, and I snapped up that showcase presents Men of War volume when I learned about Gravedigger. The best next five story I have involves the last book you covered. All Out War. Again, without much background, and at the time, no network of other works comics fans. At this point, I was the only war comics reader I knew. I stumbled upon All Out War 3 at my local comic shop. Shout out to Borderlands in Greenville, South Carolina. During their creatively named Big Annual Sale, given that I had just recently become essentially obsessed with war comics, I would have bought this issue no matter what. But in a three for a dollar bin? How could I pass it up? Viking Commando has to be the craziest DC war lead strip in their long history. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't love it. That comic was also my introduction to DC's Dollar Comics, by which I have gone on to fill in a fair amount of the Dollar Comics war titles in the interim. There is something quite special about those thick comics, whereas it seems there is always one more story waiting to be read. As an aside, given Rich's history minute about PT boats, there is even a PT boat story in an early war that time forgot strip, Star Springer War Stories 97, cover dated July 1961. It's pretty much what you might expect, a PT boat rolling down river on Dinosaur Island battling an endless parade of prehistoric titans. In other words, awesome. Thanks for the entertaining podcasts, and let's all make war no more. And moving right along do the results of a fan-based voting 
poll that we put out for our listeners. As we said before, we have an Intel report where we talk about comic book series that are out there that have like-themed war-slash-horror stories that we think our dear listeners would be interested in just finding out about. We recently decided that the fans should have you know, a certain say in our programming, and we put it to our listeners as to what Intel report would they most like to have a special mission of us covering. We are proud to announce, ladies and gentlemen, that the 2007 Haunted Tank miniseries is the winner. It takes place in Operation Iraqi Freedom. General Jeb Stewart has a new tank to oversee with a new guardian. But the trick is, his new guardian is African-American. And guess what? He doesn't like having a, a ghostly Confederate uh, <laughs> a ghostly Confederate overlooking him. What's the worst that could happen? Tune in, folks. There's an episode coming. <laughs> yeah, very cool indeed. Very fitting that uh, the Haunted Tank Vertigo edition did win that poll. But there was some uh, there was some fierce competition. I was surprised to see you know some some votes coming in from some some of the other titles that we spotlight there because Rich has covered a wide range of books in the Intel reports. Yes, all with certain common themes. But we go from everywhere from Archie to Avatar to all kinds of you. You just don't know what kind of publishers. Rich reads all this stuff. People, he's got them all in his house. And already, like I said, a wide spectrum was covered. So a lot of people have read a lot of these books out there. That's good to see. And I'm looking forward to talking about that miniseries because I haven't read it in years. Well the, well, the other thing also is, you know, moving forward, we're going to do this again next year. And we'll have all these upcoming Intel reports to add to this list. And the ones that didn't win this time are still in the running. Quantum Tank is out, but, you know, He Who Fights with Monsters, Aerosmith, Sergeant Rock and the Army of the Dead, Guns of the Dragon, Sergeant Werewolf, 30 Days of Night, Red Snow, Light Brigade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Come back next year, folks. Try again. Yeah, that sound you hear is me tiptoeing away. Glad I'm not responsible for setting up the mechanics behind the polls. <laughs> Rich, Although you were this time. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll post the polls on Twitter and everything, but keep a track of who's eligible and blah, 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 blah. you just give me the list. And I'll, I'll throw a bunch of polls in the thread and see how it goes. That's a yeah. year. We'll figure it out. <laughs> People newcomers and valued pre-existing listeners veterans of the weird warriors podcast we welcome you all we thank you all that was our contribution to jl may 2023 and i should tell you that depending on who's actually finished their episodes because you know this can get a little chaotic people there's a lot of there's a lot of great shows involved a lot of issues of this series you either just came to this episode if you're following the crossover from rolled spine podcast networks coverage of issues 24 through 26 of this series and or the bat pods coverage of issue 27 of this series to us who covered issues issue 28 and from here you will go on to perhaps issue 29 which will be covered by our good friend billy d at the magazines and monsters podcast and or issue 30 which will be covered on shags from the Fire and Water podcast, yes, that's Shag's Once Upon a Geek podcast. He'll be covering issue 30, as I said. So keep it rolling. There's only like 34 issues in this crossover. I mean, you got it. You got the time, right? Come on. It's JL May. Get into it. <laughs> All right, so that 
wraps up our issue for real people. Before we leave, though, Rich is going to give you a little teaser in case you feel like sticking around after all this for what's coming up next on our regularly scheduled podcast. Geared War Tales number 40. 40, Max. You wouldn't have made it to issue three without me and you know it. No lies detected. <laughs> Ghosts. Aliens. Secret identities. If only it was all in the same story. Now that would be weird. It would, wouldn't it? And that's why we're here. So until next time, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. This has been JL May 2023. I have been Max. He's been Rich. We're the Batlin Bros. We are the Weird Warriors. And we promise to make war. No more. Thank you.